I'm really so excited to share with you Intelligence Squared US, America's leading platform for fair and balanced debate. I'm a really huge fan of their work and have been on their show many times. They always have interesting, meaningful, rigorous discussions about tough subjects. It's a debate series and they pull together the world's top thinkers on each topic to compare and contrast both sides of an issue. The discussions are impartial, informative and, most importantly, civil. They're truly doing great stuff over at Intelligence Squared, bringing reason to controversial topics and navigating them superbly. I always learn something, whether I'm listening or participating in one of the debates. It's a terrific series, an important non-profit project which the country needs right now more than ever, and you should subscribe now, immediately. Coming up, an episode from Intelligence Squared, Is Nationalism a Force for Good? Do me a favor, have a listen. Hi everybody, I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared US Debates. Here's something to ponder ahead of the debate we're about to present now. Something to consider about yourself. How much does your identity hinge on what nation you're a citizen of? So from wherever you may be joining us right now, whether it's in the United States or France or Brazil or Egypt or Malaysia or Kenya, how much do you consider being an American citizen or a French citizen or Brazilian or Malaysian or Egyptian or Kenyan, a core part of who you are, central to your identity? And how much does that bind your interests to the millions of other people who share that very citizenship with you? I ask because we're going to be taking on the topic of nationalism, a political movement and a theory that is getting a lot of attention as various nationalist movements and politicians appear to be ascendant in places like Hungary and Poland and Russia and the UK and the US. The question we're asking reflects one that you might be asking yourself. Are you inclined to embrace nationalism as an expression of who you are and as an organizing principle for how your leaders do business with the rest of the world? Or are you wary? Do you see a dark side to nationalism that causes you concern? Well, we thought these questions had the makings of a debate, so we had it. We got together two teams of two, experts in their fields, to argue yes or no to this statement, nationalism is a force for good. We recorded this debate on June 22nd, remotely, as part of the German Marshall Fund's annual Brussels Forum, which took place online this year. Our debate went in three rounds, and our digital audience voted before and after the debate. As always, the team that swayed the most minds was declared our winner. But you can still weigh in on this one. We are keeping the vote open on our website, iq2us.org, for our audience tuning in via podcast and radio. You can cast your first vote on the resolution right now by visiting iq2us.org, or if you're listening to us on podcast, by clicking the link in our show notes. Now, let's meet our debaters. So first up, arguing for the resolution, nationalism is a force for good. Here is Colin Duick. Colin, 
Uh, you are a scholar of international affairs. You have advised several administrations on foreign policy and recently released a book on the topic of what you call conservative nationalism. I just want to say welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. And, and where are you in the nation right now? I live in a small town in Virginia called Warrington and uh, love it here. It's, it's mercifully distant from Washington, D.C. <laughs> but not that distant, in the orbit, but outside the Beltway. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. And I want to introduce your partner, who will also be arguing for the resolution. I want to say hello to Prerna Singh. Prerna, you are a political scientist and author of a book on the emerging nationalism of India. It's great to have you with us. I just want to say welcome. And where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from Little Rhodey, Rhode Island, uh, and Providence, where I'm based because I teach at Brown University. Thanks so much for joining us. It's excellent to have you here. Now, arguing uh, against the resolution, we have two debaters as usual. Again, the resolution is nationalism is a force for good. These debaters arguing against that. First, I want to say hello to Andrew Keene. Andrew, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. Hi, John. For folks who haven't seen our previous debates, you've debated with us a number of times. One of our favorite debaters, you are a film director, you host a podcast, you're an author, uh, and you're one of the foremost commentators on the state of democracy in the world today. Welcome back. And where in this world are you right now? Uh, I'm in the People's Republic of Berkeley. <laughs> All right. It's great to have you back. And our fourth debater, again, will be speaking against the resolution. I want to say hello to Alif Shafak. Alif, uh, you're an award-winning novelist. Uh, you're also a founding member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. It's great to have you with us. And where are you joining us from? Well, I'm in the UK. I'm in London. Okay, fantastic. So we're truly international today, which again plays to what our partners are doing with the Brussels Forum. So it's great to have all four of you with us. So as always... Our debate will go in three rounds, and then you, our online audience, will vote to decide who is the winning team. And the way we determine victory is it goes to the team who's changed the most minds over the course of the debate between the first and the second vote. So now is the time to cast your first vote. So I think we're ready to get started. Round one is comprised of opening statements from each debater in turn. One more time, our resolution is nationalism is a force for good. And here first to speak for the resolution, Prerna Singh. So political leaders across the world today are evoking an exclusionary nationalism associated with discrimination, division, and destruction. My partner and I, however, will draw on our expertise as political scientists to remind you that nationalism can also be a powerful force for good. So nationalism is fundamentally about the love of country. It generates a sense of shared solidarity of a we-ness. And this shift from a me to a we identity links my own welfare to that of my national community as a whole. And this commitment to a national common good is a powerful mobilizing force for the realization of freedom. Through history across the world, hundreds of thousands of people have been motivated by nationalism to risk their lives to liberate their homelands from foreign rule. Think of the movements against colonial rule across Asia and Africa in the first part of the 20th century, like that led by Gandhi in India, movements against Soviet communism in the 1990s in Eastern Europe, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa led by Nelson Mandela, all driven by nationalism. 
But it's not just in these exceptional moments. Nationalism helps the realization of freedom every day by facilitating the functioning of liberal democracies. Nation states are the units that allow for the foundation of liberal democracies. Further, nationalism infuses what would otherwise be the technical ties of rights and duties with what has been described as the magic of my. Through history, political leaders that also see their citizens as my people have been more strongly obligated and committed to the welfare of their people. On the other hand, national attachments motivate people to make sacrifices for the state, sacrifices of time and effort when they vote, of money when they pay their taxes, and the most supreme sacrifice of all of their lives when they join the army and fight for their country. But to be sure, like all groups, nations have boundaries, those who belong and those who do not. And national boundaries are in themselves not necessarily a problem. A healthy drive for national competitiveness has driven important contributions in the arts. Russian literature, Cuban music, French cinema, Thai cuisine, I could go on. It's the lifeblood of sports. The problem is that national boundaries have in the past and are today being defined in an exclusive way to shut out and target ethnic minorities, immigrants and refugees. This, however, is not a reason to condemn nationalism. In fact, it is precisely the reason to not give up on it, but instead to fight to reclaim it from these exclusive definitions and put forward a more inclusive national us. If you vote against the motion, you not only give up on the immense constructive potential of nationalism, you do something far more dangerous. You cede our most powerful mobilizational tool to right-wing populist constructions and manipulations. A vote, yes, recognizes the reality that despite globalization, nations are here to stay, nationalism is here to stay. A vote, yes, honors the historic power of nationalism as a force for freedom and allows us to harness its progressive potential today and in the future. Thank you very much, Prerna Singh. And our next speaker will be arguing against the resolution that nationalism is a force for good. Alif Shafak. So I'm a storyteller. And as much as I love language, literature and stories, I am equally interested in silences. There's a part of me that wants to give more voice to people who have been pushed to the margins, disempowered, treated unfairly, and hurt. And this is one of the many reasons why I oppose nationalism. Because nationalism, both as an ideology and praxis, causes far more damage and hurt than good. It claims to unite, but in truth, it divides. It pretends to be inclusive, but it excludes not only people outside the nation, but also minorities within the society. It talks about achieving order and prosperity, but it is a source of constant tension, distrust, conflict, and way too often bloodshed. The proponents of nationalism will tell you that there are different types of nationalism, and some of them are nice and harmless. But the truth is, outside academic circles, in daily life, in real life, that doesn't mean much because on the streets out there, nationalism is an untamed force. And at its heart lies the duality, us versus them. And the assumption that us is somehow better than them. 
The definition of them will change constantly depending on the circumstances, but the distance between us and them will always be there, ready to deepen and worsen at the first sight of a crisis. And those of us who come from the Balkans, from Anatolia, from the Middle East, from the Levant and beyond, we do know that it takes one political crisis, it takes one major economic crisis for a nice nationalism to turn ugly. It is happening right now as we're speaking, country after country, from Viktor Orban's Hungary to Bolsonaro's Brazil, from Modi's India to Trump's America, or Erdogan's Turkey. I come from a country where the civil society has been crushed by populist, religious, authoritarian nationalism. Turkish nationalism teaches young children that we are a nation surrounded by water on three sides and enemies on four sides. And the only friend of a Turk is another Turk. That paranoia, that xenophobia is not accidental, but intrinsic to nationalism. We are not disputing the beauty and the importance of one's love and compassion for his culture, language, literature, the land of his ancestors. But you don't need nationalism for that. We do not have to become nationalists in order to love and embrace and honor our roots. Finally, in a pandemic world, nationalism is not only misleading and dangerous, but it's also completely impractical and unrealistic. We have massive challenges ahead, and these are global challenges, starting with climate catastrophe. Our planet is burning. Whether it's cyber terrorism, the dark side of digital technologies, AI, robotics, or another pandemic, our problems, our lives, our destinies are interconnected. So it is much wiser and much healthier for us to collaborate beyond borders, to think beyond tribes, and always bear in mind our common humanity. We believe we can neither solve global challenges nor heal existing wounds with the toxicity of nationalism. More opening statements from our debaters when we return. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. A reminder that we are in the middle of round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now let's get to the last two opening statements. Our next speaker will be arguing again from the other side, the side arguing for the resolution. Nationalism is a force for good. Here is Colin Duick. You might say the chattering classes on both sides of the Atlantic believe that nationalism is not a force for good. That's very clear. They believe nationalism is warlike, destructive, authoritarian. What we believe is the fact that nationalism can be a force for good. The first point is that nationalism in itself is really the best device that human beings have yet found to preserve the possibility for experiments with constitutional self-government. There is no system of global governance that actually functions any better than a democratic nation-state in allowing for freedom and opportunity at the national level. The second point is the United States in particular, like every country, has its own version of nationalism. In the American case, that version was laid out by the American founders in their Declaration of Independence, which said that all men are created equal. And they could have added all women. And what that means is that the American tradition of nationalism properly understood is a civic religion or creed, as many have noted, that, ha that has respect for minorities built into it implicitly from the very beginning. It's a, it's a tradition, a nationalist tradition in the United States that celebrates rule of law, constitutionalism, individual liberty, 
and limited government. That is American nationalism. Do we really want to reject that? I, I would suggest not. I think that that's a healthy, benign tradition. And most of the debates we see in, inside the United States across party lines are debates over how exactly to express it. My last point is this, when it comes to American foreign policy, there is also a tradition that, that none other than George Washington outlined, suggesting that the United States has the right to preserve its own national sovereignty. He suggested that the United States is a sovereign country. It had declared its independence, not its dependence. And although Americans over the course of the 20th century made a variety of commitments necessarily to combat authoritarian states, we have found that preserving American national sovereignty on balance is a healthy thing. The American nationalist tradition is in fact the oldest democratic American foreign policy tradition. It's meant to preserve Americans' right to self-government. It's meant to preserve the sovereignty of a particular state. My opponent just suggested that there's no such thing as a different type of nationalism. I would respectfully differ. I would say, she's speaking, I believe, from London. Uh, but the British form of a nationalism is radically different than the Chinese or the Russian form, which are authoritarian. I doubt she would be allowed to make this argument today if she was sitting in Beijing or Moscow. It is the British form of nationalism which celebrates freedom of speech, constitutionalism, and individual liberties that allows her to join us to critique nationalism. So my own conclusion would be that traditional Western forms of nationalism, and also some non-Western forms, as long as they're democratic, can be healthy, productive, celebratory, and worthwhile. Thank you, Colin Duick. And we have one more speaker in this opening round to be speaking against the resolution that nationalism is a force for good. Here is Andrew Keene. So let's remember what the motion is. Nationalism is a force for good. So far, our opponents have suggested it could be, it might be, it was, but they're not arguing that it is. We're talking about nationalism today in a world of Erdogan, of Putin, of Trump, of Bolsonaro, of Duterte, of this new wave of authoritarian nationalism. It's also important to remember that we're not arguing about the existence of the nation state. I acknowledge, and I think my partner would acknowledge, that nation states are fine. The problem is that nationalism as an ideological, extreme ideological manifestation of the nation state is deeply problematic. It wasn't always problematic. Back in, let's take 1720, 300 years ago, nationalism was a, a, a way of thinking that challenged the authoritarianism, centralized states in England and France. In 1820, it was a way for Germany and Italy and other Central European countries to reawake. In 1920, nationalism was a way for colonized countries to react, to determine their identities against uh, the colonial powers. But today, in 2020, we have a massive problem with nationalism. The problem is that the way we live our lives the simultaneously globalized and fragmented nature of early 21st century life doesn't conform to the traditional notions of nationalism. Increasingly, people living in the same political state have less and less in common. And the problem with this fantasy of nationalism is it lends itself to nationalist leaders who lie. Now, our opponents suggest that there's a difference between British nationalism 
and Chinese nationalism. Perhaps in a sense there is, but in another sense there isn't. Boris Johnson is, much, is as much a liar on Brexit as Putin or Orban or Bolsonaro or Trump. They're all lying because there's no existence. There's no real existence of nationalism. It's a fantasy. It's an imaginary community that doesn't, in fact, unite us. The biggest problem, and this is where my opponents are profoundly wrong, is they suggest that it enriches democracy. But in 2020, they couldn't be more wrong. The most troubling manifestation of the world on June 22, 2020, is the rise of deeply authoritarian nationalists all over the world. Nationalism today, in 2020, is not a force for good. And that concludes our opening round, opening statements, and now we move on to our second round. And in our second round, it's more of a conversation. What I think we've heard is uh, varying conceptions of what nationalism stands for. On one side, the notion that by its power to turn me into we, it can be a unifying force for getting good done in the world on behalf of the citizens of a nation state. On the other side, we're hearing that nationalism may be from time to time has done some good, but that on the whole and almost inevitably, it turns into us against them. And that that's a destructive force that has been repeated over and over again in history. So I want to take the question to you, Prerna, um, a, a question actually that we've received from an audience member who is a prior debater with us, Jennifer Rubin, who is an opinion writer for the Washington Post. And she asks, isn't nationalism by definition rooted in blood and soil? And if so, does it inextricably lead to xenophobia, racism, and protectionism? I, I would put on top of that question the argument that I think we heard from uh, Alif that nationalism is inherently going to turn dark, that it, that's, that's a sort of inevitable course that it takes. I think Jennifer Rubin's question is pointing out some of the ways in which it turns dark, but that it's inevitably going to be a negative force. What's your response to that? So nationalism is about attachment to a political territory. And I was heartened to see that my opponents kind of conceded the fact that we live in a world of nation states. So if you acknowledge that we live in a world of nation states, you also recognize nationalism as the legitimizing, legitimizing ideology of political rule. And so I, I acknowledge that there are versions of nationalism in which the blood and soil aspect of it uh, rise to the fore. But I would also submit that we have seen how it has driven profoundly inclusive movements in which it is less about blood and soil, but about a constructed idea of belonging. So there are nationalisms that are not necessarily rooted in blood and soil that are alive and flourishing today and that have played a very important role in tackling the crises of today. So there is a kind of top nationalism, which is this populist, radical, exclusionary nationalism voiced by leaders. But every day on the streets, there is less of that and much more of a civic conception of the nation that is motivating Italians to come out, sing national anthems and patriotic songs, and bang their pots uh, in honor of their national health workers, you see in France, Macron 
talk again and again about the analogy, as other political leaders have done, that this is an invisible enemy. We're at war. But this is a rallying of the nation. The New York Times, a liberal left newspaper, has an op-ed that says it is patriotic to social distance. This points out, um, I think, that there are distinct versions of nationalism and that it's happening every day. And this everyday inclusive nationalism is mobilizing people to fight the pandemic and other current events at this moment. Let me take that, your point to Alif. There was a lot in there, Alif, but what is your response overall to, the, especially where we heard Priyana giving examples of of outcomes that I think most of us would consider positive, which she attributes to nationalism? What's your response to, especially since, Alif, you made the strongest case of anybody on among the debaters today, there's an inherent evil built into nationalism. So what's your response to those examples of good? So I do make a distinction between one's love and appreciation and, and compassion for one's country, culture, language, literature. As I mentioned, these are beautiful things. So that kind of patriotism is very different than the nationalism that we are talking about today. So so can I stop you to, yeah, if that would be very helpful for us to draw the distinction between patriotism and nationalism. Your opponents may or may not agree with it, but I'd like to hear how you make that distinction. Patriotism is much older. Nationalism is much younger. Patriotism, when you look at even how the word has been used, going all the way back to the Elizabethan era, coming from you know, late Latin, but also Greek origin, basically it means a connection, a belong, sense of belonging with your fellow countrymen and countrywomen. Whereas the word nationalism, even the concept itself, the way it was coined, first of all, it is much younger, and their main preoccupation was not only defining who belongs in a nation, but also who should not belong in the nation. That distinction was there present from the very beginning. When you look at the, the thinkers, the main thinkers of nationalism, they are busy trying to also highlight who should never ever belong in the national project. Every nationalism comes up with their own official history, official way of telling the story. What makes the difference is whether that country is a democracy, a pluralistic democracy. In a pluralistic democracy, we can go to a bookstore and find books that question the official historiography. And the authors of those books are not prosecuted. So it's not the nationalism that makes a difference, but it is precisely whether there's pluralistic liberal democracy in that country and freedom of speech. Colin, did Alif accurately describe, in, from your point of view, how nationalism has functioned in the United States. You've already made the case that you feel that nationalism has functioned in a largely positive way most of the time. She has outlined a situation in which nationalism by necessity excludes and does not attribute the the to the degree the United States is a successful democracy, that's success to nationalism. So what's your response to all of that? Uh, well, I mean, there's generations of American historians who've argued that a sense of American nationalism is is central, in a benign way, central to American foreign policy. Could you define, sorry to interrupt you, but could you take a moment to define what that, what they mean by that nationalism, what that is? Sure. It means a, a, a close attachment to U.S. national sovereignty, a desire to protect the sovereignty, integrity, independence of the United States internationally, to stand for its rights, its values, its way of life internationally. It includes, by the way, the hope that popular forms of self-government will spread. Washington was clear about that as well. Uh, it, there's nothing inherently warlike about it, but there are times where it does have to be vindicated by the use of force, as, for example, it was during World War II. I don't see how Hitler 
and Nazi Germany would have been stopped without nationalism, not just patriotism, but French nationalism, American nationalism, British nationalism, and even Russian nationalism. I mean, I don't see how you would have had anything other than a Nazi conquest of Europe without robust, popular nationalism to stop it. Can I jump in for a second, John? Just Yes, please do. Please do. So I just wanted to point out, to, uh, to me, this is a semantic game. Patriotism and nationalism are the same thing. It is an inclusive, civic-minded nationalism that gets called patriotism. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that we don't want to make any distinctions and that we are the ones telling you that there's a distinction between a more positive and a less positive nationalism. And then you can't then come out and say, well, this is patriotism and this is nationalism and this is democratic and then it's authoritarian. I don't think it works that way. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And actually, I have heard what you are saying many times in Turkey from uh, very different groups in Turkey because... As an author, I've always been interested in the stories that official Turkish history has excluded, denied, suppressed, and silenced. So one of those very important stories is the Armenian genocide. In 2006, I wrote a novel called The Bastard of Istanbul, which tells the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian-American family. When the book was published, I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness. And the accusation against me was that I was a traitor, that I did not love my nation. I believe it is possible to love, to be patriot, to love and care for your country, for the oral culture, for the literature, the amor de la patria. You know, that is something I feel with me. I live in exile, I can't go back in, to Istanbul, but Istanbul comes with me everywhere. So amor de la patria is something very different, but am I a nationalist? No, I am not. Am I critical of nationalism? Yes, I am. So it is quite possible to be patriotic without being a nationalist. And actually, many times nationalists are telling us, if you criticize the government, then that means you don't love your country. That, that means you're a traitor. We really need to make those distinctions very, very well. And I think it all ties back to what I said earlier, because the nationalist project is constantly trying to erase the stories and the truths of minorities. Let me bring in Andrew, and I want to point out that you and Andrew are partners, so this is not a parry to what you just said, but I'm I'm expecting it's in support. But go ahead, Andrew. I think Elif's point's a really important one. She underlines the fact that nationalism itself, while peddling on the metaphysics of history, suggesting that, uh, that, that, that communities have existed forever, which is another lie, um, is historically rooted. There was no such thing. The, the word didn't exist until uh, Herder and, and, and other uh, 18th century thinkers invented it. There's always been patriotism. There's always been love of one's community. You can find it uh, in antiquity. You can find it in every culture. You can find it in the Middle Ages. So we're not arguing that we should, that the, this debate is not about loving one's community. This is a debate about how to, uh, how to operate a nation state around an ideology, whether or not we think that the ideology of nationalism, which many authoritarian leaders have fallen on in, in the early part of the 20th century, is a good or a bad thing. But let me pick up on the point you just made. Is there such a thing? Can there be a nation state without nationalism? There can, of course, be many nation states. Canada is a good example. Uh, Canada is a country which has come to terms with the idea that 
many different types of people live in the country and that the notion of Canadianness, while might excite some sports fans and late night comics, is essentially irrelevant. Uh, and I think, and, and, and America is an exceptional case, but I think there are also, uh, there is a tradition in America which is similar to, to Canada, which I certainly prefer over Trump's uh, ethnic nationalism, defining what it means to be an American, particularly, I think, around race, around whiteness. Colin? So uh, I grew up in Canada. I spent the first uh, 20 some years of my life there. And I'm, I'm glad that Andrew mentioned it. So I eventually became a U.S. citizen. But as I'm sure Andrew knows, English Canadians and French Canadians both have a robust national pride or sense of nationalism. There is a French Canadian nationalism. There's also an intense English Canadian nationalism or patriotism. And it's often been referred to as a form of nationalism, not just patriotism. Uh, it, actually, it actually distinguishes Canada from the United States. And it, uh, that, that is a central theme in English-Canadian nationalism. Um, and it's a great example of, of how what our opponents seem to be doing is saying that when there's a particular version of nationalism they like, they're just going to call it patriotism. When there's a version they don't like, so that Canada, for example, is fine. We're fine with Canada. It's harmless. It's tame. It's liberal. <laughs> but then there's a version that they don't like, even if it's democratically elected, like President Trump, or Prime Minister Boris Johnson, that's authoritarian, it's ideological, it's extreme, and it's dark. I, I have yet to hear a convincing argument as to how they're able to make those distinctions other than just a subjective preference for one elected leader over another. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared US. You'll hear more questions and closing remarks when we return. Welcome back to round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Colin, we have a question from a previous debater, Lee Drutman, who's a senior fellow at New America, which I think might help focus where we're going with this. Which country in the world today is doing nationalism best, and what does that look like? Hmm. That is a great question. I actually don't think Boris Johnson's a liar. <laughs> I, don't, I don't live there, but I would say that in Britain, whether or not you support the decision to leave the EU, first of all, it was the vote of a majority of British citizens. It's being implemented by a democratically elected leader. I don't see how it's possible to claim that he's authoritarian, other than if you're just using the word to mean somebody you don't happen to like. The principal distinction between a what I would consider a, a negative form of nationalism and the positive form is that the negative form is authoritarian and that the positive form is democratic. That is a principal difference that has nothing to do with whether you like the particular leader that was elected. It's not a question as to whether you think Boris Johnson is a nice guy or not, or whether you think Donald Trump is a nice guy or not. These are both leaders, for all their differences, that were elected in democratic processes in a free country. These are not the equivalent of a Russian or Chinese dictator. I, I believe that Boris Johnson does indeed love I don't know whether it's Britain or England. But let's just remind ourselves again of what we're arguing about. Nationalism is a force for good. So we have a situation in the UK where Boris Johnson, for better or worse, is an English nationalist. He's opposed to the very idea of the EU because it somehow offends his Englishness. And therefore, I think he peddled a series of lies to get the UK out of the EU. I think we just need to come back to the reality of our world in 2020. We live, for better or worse, in a globalized world. 
the coronavirus is a classic manifestation of why nationalism is not a force for good. Uh, Trump talks about the, 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 the Kung flu epidemic to nationalize coronavirus. But in our globalized networked age, nationalism is not a solution. And because it's not a solution and because it doesn't reflect the reality of our socioeconomic glued global world, it lends itself to people like Johnson lying and falling back on historical mythology and absurd nostalgia. Can I bring a question to you, Alif? One point that I don't think your side has responded to from your opponents came from Pirna's opening statement in which she talked about various examples in which she thinks what are perceived as good outcomes would not have happened without the power of nationalism. So, for example, the, the decolonization of the African continent, the story of Gandhi, that nationalism was critical, was crucial in the liberation movements in those places, and that without it, those things wouldn't have happened. That would sound like a very, very strong endorsement of nationalism. I'd like to know what your response is to that. Anti-colonial struggles are incredibly important, and we need to discuss it at more length. But we also need to understand that if an anti-colonial struggle gets stuck in its own nationalism, the aftermath of liberation, we will see again the exclusion of the minorities within that community. And again, history has given us so many examples that proves this. What does the aftermath of an anti-colonial struggle, if it only stays within the context of nationalism? I want to underline that. Because until that point, it is a movement for equality, for freedom. But once nationalism becomes the main identity, that is incredibly problematic. What does it mean, for instance, for LGBT communities? What does it mean for ethnic minorities? for the people who do not necessarily fit in the description of the majority. Everything is changing in the world we're living. And nationalism is not liquid. Nationalism does not like multiplicity. I came to the UK about 12 years ago, and I have seen nationalism change this country, the, the language of politics. I want to take that point, which is very powerfully made to Colin. You've lived in two nations. You're to some degree multinational, but the, the argument that Alif just made that there's another way to be that can be very, very enriching and meaningful and positive. What's your response to that? Well, I think most great patriots have understood historically that they can have multiple identities. They can be proud of their city, of their state, of their country at the same time. Those are not mutually exclusive, but the desire to put country before self is central. And I would I would call that nationalism. And I would just say, Alif has spoken very eloquently on concern for the disempowered, and that's the marginalized. It's important to remember that nationalism in its benign form can actually do exactly that. I think that if you look at working class voters in parts of northern England, parts of the Rust Belt United States, these were voters who obviously felt they had been ignored by existing policies, including trade policies. We who sit inside the Beltway and sit at think tanks and talk about the benefits of globalism, need to remember that there are real human beings who have immediate concerns about globalization and that we need to listen. We need to listen to them. What I'm hearing from Alif is, you know, you can use the UK and Brexit as a, an example, the nationalism embodied an us and them about immigrants, that there was a very, very strong and dark aspect to that. And they're saying that that us and themness is always built into nationalism. Well, I understand, I understand that they've repeated that argument, but I, I haven't heard it substantiated. I mean, what Prayer and I have countered with is to, is to show plenty of examples historically and today of the benign form. So obviously it's not inherently dark. They haven't responded to the, the reality of the world in 2020, where 
authoritarian nationalists are destroying democracy all over the world. How would they explain Hungary? How would they explain Brazil? How would they explain the United States? We keep on hearing, oh, well, nationalism could be okay. Uh, in principle, it works. In principle, everything works. But the reality of the world today is that nationalism is deeply intolerant. Colin's right about listening to people and listening particularly to people who are on the wrong side of globalization. But as Alif noted, their unwillingness to listen. They have created this world in which anyone outside their conception of the nation is illegitimate. They are profoundly and structurally intolerant and anti-democratic. And that's where nationalism leads in 2020. Prerna, I can give you the last word on this round. I feel we've offered you a plethora of examples across history, across the world. And I want to end with something I think very important that Elif has repeatedly brought up, which is that of what is, what, what is the role here of margin? What is the place in the nation of marginalized communities, whether those are sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, poor people like socioeconomic class or immigrants or refugees? If we want to say, if we want to kind of reject nationalism, let's just look for a second at the way in which marginalized communities across the world are mobilizing their nation states to give them greater rights. I've already mentioned the examples of Muslims in India. They're using the language of nationalism. They're using the anthem, the songs, the semantics, the heroes, the figures. Why are they pulling out, pulling down Confederate statues? Because they want a more inclusive nationalism. So again, if you just look out on the streets today, this is what the marginalized groups that want to be a part of the nation, nationalism is a rallying cry for them. We cannot reject it. All right, debaters, that concludes round two of our debate. We are about to go into round three. Brief closing statements from each debater. So round three, closing statements. Our resolution is nationalism is a force for good. Here to be making his argument for the resolution, nationalism is a force for good, Colin Duick. I'm going to just tell a, a short story. If I'm accused of being nostalgic about American history and about this nation having immigrated here, I do plead guilty. I've noticed that there's a lively debate going on in the United States these days over Confederate statues, and you've already heard a little bit about it. Um, and everyone has their own views on that. I am struck by the fact that a statue of Ulysses Grant was torn down the other day. I think it was in San Francisco. The people that tore down that statue may not have realized the statement they were unintentionally making, since Grant, of course, was indispensable to the Union victory in the Civil War. That war was a vindication of American nationalism. It was understood to be so at the time and should be understood today. That is exactly the type of nationalism we're talking about. It's inclusive. It stands for equality between men and women of all ethnicities, religions, and races. It was, in fact, the Confederacy at that time, the defeated force, that stood for a version of identity politics that sliced and diced people according to their ethnicity, elevating some above others. So thank God that Lincoln, Grant, and the Union won that civil war. And as a matter of fact, I think the protesters who tore down Grant's statues could also be thankful for it. Um, I would conclude by saying, if you are happy, as I am, <laughs> that the war ended in the way it did, if you believe that Lincoln and Grant and the Union were right, if you believe that that's an example of a healthy American nationalism that is not entirely irrelevant to this day, then you must agree that nationalism is a force for good and you must vote yes. 
Thank you, Colin Duick. And uh, the resolution, again, nationalism is a force for good. Our next closing statement is against the resolution, and it comes from Andrew Keane. I think we've got to get beyond nationalism. I think that that's our challenge in 2020. Nationalism doesn't work. It's an archaic idea rooted uh, mostly on lies and inventions. Uh, and let me tell a story of why I think that's the case. Uh, I just made a film called How to Fix Democracy. I interviewed a guy called Rick Stengel, who used to be the editor of Time magazine. Rick, in 2009, went to Moscow to give Vladimir Putin the Time magazine person of the year. When Rick showed up, Putin was incredibly rude and non-communicative, as he tends to be. And they had a photo session, and they were all trying to warm Putin up. They wanted him to talk, to at least smile and acknowledge their presence. So the photographer kept on trying to, to, to pinch Putin, at least in a metaphorical sense. And at one point, he said to Putin, and this was his way of warming up particularly difficult characters like Putin, what's your favorite Beatles song? And Putin, who up to that point had never even uttered a word in English, immediately said, yesterday. And I love that because it really reiterates the challenge we have today between yesterdays and tomorrows. What is our favorite Beatles song shouldn't be yesterday. I even wrote a book called Yesterdays Versus Tomorrows. The reason why nationalism is not a force for good is because it's being peddled by the cult of yesterday. We need to free ourselves from that. We need to embrace tomorrow. We need to rethink our politics, our institutions, and above all else, our sense of political identity. I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that in 2020, nationalism doesn't work. It's not a force for good. And I urge you to vote against the motion. And now we switch back to the other side of the argument for another closing statement. This one comes from Pirna Singh. She will be arguing for the resolution, nationalism is a force for good. Pirna. Through this debate, uh, the opposition has showcased an exclusionary nationalism associated with xenophobia, racism, and conflict. But as my partner and I have convincingly tried to show you, nationalism has historically been and is being defined today, more inclusively in many parts of the world, not maybe by leaders, but by people on the streets to include those from ethnic, class, and gender lines. And such an inclusively defined nationalism enables the functioning of liberal democracies. It has powered movements for freedom. It encourages the adoption of social welfare policies. It rallies people from marginalized communities to demand their rights from states. Such a shared overarching national identity has brought together and helped heal divides between ethnic groups. Such an inclusive nationalism has been and remains today a force for immense good. A vote in favor of the motion is a recognition of this historically documented and continuing constructive potential of nationalism. A vote in favor of the motion is not an endorsement of the Trumps, the Modis, the Bolsonaros. In fact, a vote in favor of the motion is essential to resisting their exclusionary nationalisms. Because if we don't accept the constructive potential of nationalism and we reject the concept itself, what this does is that it essentially leaves a powerful dynamo entirely in the hands of right-wing populist leaders who define nationalism in an ethnic majoritarian way, whether that's white Christian nationalism in the US or Hindu nationalism in India. And they use this exclusionary nationalism to fuel their destructive agendas. 
It is only if we accept that nationalism can be a force for good that we open ourselves to the possibility of embracing nationalism and redefining it in a way that includes and protects the marginalized. In conclusion, I just want you to take a moment and just think that protester who risks severe retribution to come out on the streets to liberate her country from foreign rule, that soldier fighting to his last breath to defend his motherland, that Olympian pushing herself to the limits of human physical achievement for national glory, the health worker today who continues to put her own life on the line to help her country fight a viral enemy. If you vote against the motion today, you negate such sacrifices that nationalism inspires. I urge you not to do that and instead to vote yes. Thank you, Pirna. And one final pivot on the resolution. Back to the against side on the resolution, nationalism is a force for good. Here is Alif Shafak making her closing statement against the resolution. Alif. Thank you so much. It was such an inspiring discussion. Nationalism is not a force for good and nationalism does not unite. It divides. It takes only one crisis or one perceived threat for virulent nationalism to turn into violent nationalism. History has shown this again and again, and it's also happening today. In India, where we have seen a very dangerous rise of ethno-nationalism in one of the most diverse and beautiful countries in the world. In January 2020 this year, a mob carrying iron rods, cricket bats and rocks entered one of the leading universities in the country, attacking and beating students and teachers violently. They did this in the name of Hindu nationalism. One of the survivors of the attack, who was a scientist, a professor, said in an interview later on that he was scared to criticize rising nationalism because he knew he would be labeled and stigmatized as a traitor. A month later, in February this year, in Germany, a gunman went to a multicultural neighborhood and randomly killed 10 people. He did this in the name of German nationalism. In the UK, during our Brexit referendum, a Labour MP, Joe Cox, was horribly murdered on the streets by an English nationalist. In Charlottesville, USA, a white nationalist crowd gathered, chanting slogans against Jews, Muslims, and all minorities, and anyone who doesn't look like them. A young woman was killed that day. In Hungary, just in June, a neo-Nazi mob came together and they chanted slogans to kick the Roma minority out of the country, the country that they have known as their home and homeland. And they did this in the name of Hungarian nationalism. Unfortunately, I have only two minutes, but the list is so long and it is getting longer and longer. How many more atrocities, how much more pain and hurt and bloodshed do we need to witness to understand that nationalism is not the answer? And yet nationalism is rising and nationalists in one place are creating and feeding nationalists elsewhere. So people who are critical of nationalism, people like Andrew and me, the truth is we are a minority, but I hope you will join us. And together, maybe we can show that another story, another vision, and another way of thinking is possible. Now it's time to declare a winner for this debate. And remember, we give victory to the side that sways the most minds between the first and the second vote. Our live digital audience therefore voted twice, once before hearing the arguments and once again afterwards. On the first vote, on the resolution, nationalism as a force for good, in polling our online audience, 31% were for the resolution at the start, 57% were against, 12% were undecided. 
And now to the concluding vote. The team arguing for the resolution, their first vote was 31%. Their second vote was 29%. They lost two percentage points. The team arguing against the resolution, their first vote was 57%. Their second vote was 67%. They pulled up 10 points. They are our winners. The team arguing against the resolution, nationalism is a force for good. Congratulations to them, Andrew Keane and Elise Shafak. Remember, you can still cast your vote online at iq2us.org. iq, the number two, us.org. Or if you're listening to us on podcast, by clicking the link in our show notes. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. This debate was produced in partnership with the German Marshall Fund. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is chief of staff. Shay O'Mara is director of editorial. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Jennifer Zelmer is senior researcher. Mary Dewey and Aaron Dalton are our radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.